Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And I just want to say Happy New Year to everybody. This year has been really great for the show. Um, great personally for me. I, I had a baby this year. And great for the show because, yeah, well, we're reaching tens of thousands of people. And uh, we've done about 50 episodes this year. It's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. And I'm learning a great deal. I hope that you are all learning a great deal as well. Um, someone brought it to my attention that we are in the top 2% of all podcasts in the world right now. There are 2.75 million podcasts. So top 2% means there's still you know thousands of podcasts that are bigger than us. But this is really um, pretty incredible. The other things I want to tell you about were that we have three interns working with the show, um, incredible young people. They are running the social media and they are also starting a, a new segment called Ask an Economist, Key Terms in About Five Minutes. And that's on our website. You can find that at acorrectionpodcast.com. And there's about a dozen terms up and we're going to be adding more terms all the time. So, um, yeah, just really wonderful stuff happening. I'd love it if if you have any money this year, if you could support the show. A couple of years ago, I asked for some support and, and that was really helpful. And I'm asking again, um, if you go to our website, acorrectionpodcast.com slash subscribe, you can see that you can become a monthly supporter or you can just make a one-time donation. What we'll be using the money for is to pay for the, the website, the upkeep of the website, which is not a lot of money, but also um, any new equipment, books that we that we get, resources. But most importantly, um, now that I, I have a kid, a young child, I'm still doing interviews, which takes you know a lot of time, but that's totally great. I'm having a good time doing it, but I'm really, really having a hard time with the editing. So we'd like to hire someone to edit the show. So our goal is to raise $12,000 this year. We are, well, we are nowhere close to that. We have just a couple hundred dollars in the account, but um, all of the money will go to the show and go to paying somebody to edit the show. So if you have a family foundation or know someone with a family foundation, please um, send us an email because, and you can find our email at the website because we are in the process of getting a nonprofit to be our fiscal sponsor, which means that you can you can have this be tax deducted. Otherwise, you can just make a donation to, to us at, um, again, acorrectionpodcast.com slash subscribe. And we would really appreciate it. It'll help us keep putting out the episodes. My goal is to keep putting out an episode a week, but uh, I think that'll only be possible if we can hire an editor. Anyway, um, have a wonderful new year and I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we're really excited to be joined, really, really excited to be joined by Lauren Sandler, who's an award-winning journalist and best-selling author. I just finished Lauren's book called This Is All I Got, A New Mother's Search for Home. And I then bought four copies and gave it to friends and family during the holiday. And I'm just so happy you're here with us. Um, thank you for being here, Lauren. Oh, thank you, Lev. 
You're very welcome. So what I want to do is I actually, this is going to be a little bit of a different interview. I, I, because I used parts of your book in my political economy class, you know, most of the questions are going to come from the students. These are questions that, you know, we, we were discussing in class and they asked me to ask you. So what I'd like to do is I, I'd like to just start by very quickly asking you to talk about the project, what you, what you did in 2015 and why you did it. Sure. First of all, I love that the questions are coming from the students. Um, that is that is an honor, honestly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've been a journalist for a while and I tend to write about social issues. I tend to write about inequality and gender, but I also tend to read novels and nonfiction narratives, um, I think, have such incredible potential to really help people um, step into an experience which is outside their own lives, the same way that reading novels do. And so I was feeling, um, as so many of us have for so long, you know, just such, such grief um, about the state of of inequality in our country and specifically in New York, where I am. And to me, sort of one of the clearest markers of that is, is what it means to not have a home. And so I decided that I wanted to tell a story about what it, what it meant to not have a home in this incredibly rich city where you know, there are luxury condos going up everywhere. And specifically what it meant to, to navigate that sort of instability as someone with a a baby, which of course, when when one has a baby, that that's a responsibility that falls disproportionately on mothers most of the time. And especially if you're a single mother, then it's all on you. And Lev, I know that you can imagine what that would mean, yeah. <laughs> especially lately as yeah. someone um, with a baby. I mean, just um, imagine that being unstably housed, having to navigate the system and have this child who's completely dependent on, upon you. And as I used to say, when my kid was a baby, just like never went away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they don't just, go just, away. Just, They're always there. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just uh, sorry to interrupt, but I just, you know, I was reading, I was reading when my, we just had a baby. So when my wife is, is breastfeeding, I'm reading to her and I'm reading to her now um, from your book. And at some point, she just she just asked me to stop because it was it was too upsetting to imagine what Camila was was going through. Uh, yeah, I get that. Um, I think it's amazing that you're reading to her while she's doing that. Um, and I really wish that Camila had had mm -hmm. a support like that. So I, um, you know, first I, I looked into reporting on city shelters in New York, but they won't allow journalists in. So I found a private shelter that allows women in towards the end of their pregnancies or when they have a newborn baby. And if they follow all the rules, which are very shape-shifting and at times seem quite random, then they get to stay for a year. And so I, I started reporting with a small group of women who were interested in being part of a project like this, who came from quite a few different backgrounds, had quite a few different experiences, but I will say their experience of poverty and being unhoused those things were all pretty uniform and pretty tragic. And then at one point, the woman who had opened her life up to me the most and who in many ways I thought was sort of the most extraordinary 
she gets kicked out of the shelter. And it was a moment in which I had to decide, okay, am I going to just follow this one person and see what their experience is? Or do I let her vanish from the narrative the way so many people vanish from the shelter, um, which is part of the experience of the book as well. And part of why I chose to focus on her and tell her individual story is that, you know, she's just this really remarkable person. She is more organized, more aware of what resources exist in this total labyrinth of a social services system, just has a lawyer's mind. She's a criminal justice student and, you know, none of her social workers, I mean, all of her social workers and professors and people who she knows will tell you they've never seen anyone as uniquely qualified to try to make it work in this system. I mean, she's, you know, she's someone who sued her own parents for child support and won yeah. uh, when she was a teenager. I mean, she's just, she's really something. And it felt like if she couldn't make the system work for her, if she couldn't end that first year of motherhood with stable housing, with a life that was moving forward, it was really, really hard to imagine that anyone could. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted, I wanted to see if she could. And I spent a lot of time with her for well over a year, but for the sake of framing the book, the book focuses on one year in her life. And it begins with her going into labor in the shelter in Brooklyn, in Park Slope, where I met her, and ends with where she's at a year later at her son's first birthday. And then there's an epilogue um, that tells a little bit more, but it's really just the story of her trying to, to navigate welfare and housing, stay in school, have this baby, and then also be, you know, this dynamic 22-year-old, she turns 23 halfway through the year, who has desires for, you know, for intimacy, for fun, for a life, um, for art, for travel, for for something that feels more like what she sees on Instagram than what she sees in the shelter meetings. And, and it's really just sort of navigating her, her place in the world, her, as the subtitle says, her search for home, whether that means in other people, whether that means in her city, she's Dominican American, she has this real pull towards the Dominican Republic, that is something that she wants to investigate. But mainly, she just frankly, like does everything right. And it, it adds up to, to a lot of heartbreak. You know, one of the things that the, that the kids were surprised about when they were, when we were reading together was well this was not their image of what a homeless person is in New York we we I, I work here in New York and you know their image is you know I think Camila calls these people bums right like so she distinguishes between you know herself and people like her and people who are you know bums who are you know the the smelly men on the subway who are using the soup kitchen below her shelter or next to her shelter. So what do you think, I mean, there's two questions here. What do you think Americans get wrong about homelessness? And then why do you think that they get it wrong? Oh, I mean, so much. And I love that you are, that you're pulling out this detail of this sort of class system that exists in housing insecurity um, and in homelessness. So, yeah, I mean, 
I think that for many of us, our sense of homelessness is what we see on the street. It's street homelessness. And in New York, that is usually, you know, uh, a male, usually a black male, usually panhandling. And that, that, that is, that's a legitimate thing, right? That's how we encounter it. And I think that we encounter it with a lot of fear and blame. I think that there's a ton of, of racism that we apply to who we see in, in those circumstances um, and a lot of anxiety instead of looking more systemically, more historically about the whole process that could have left let someone end up in that situation through, you know, through multi-generational trauma and systemic inequality. It's a story of, of schools, of housing, of, of, you know, of minimum wage, of trauma. It's just, there's, there's a lot there, um, even in what we see. But, you know, the majority of homelessness in America is what we don't see. It's, it's people who are couch surfing. It's people who, you know, are in shelters or sleeping in cars. And a lot of people are, are women and a lot of people are single mothers. And these are people who, who, you know, may be able to afford the 15 bucks to get a manicure every few weeks or who can find things on the sale rack at H&M who, you know, who look as put together as anyone else on the subway or anyone else at the supermarket, but they are, they are going back to a shelter at night and not to a home um, that, that they can call their own. I think about something often, which is I did an event at um, a center at Harvard after the book came out with people who do social policy at Harvard and, um, you know, both at the design center at the, and at the Kennedy School for Social Policy, people who've worked in this field forever. And they just couldn't get over the fact that Camilla goes back to her old neighborhood in Corona, Queens every several weeks and, you know, will spend like 15 bucks getting a manicure. Like that use of money to them is so unseemly and so irresponsible. And it's like, I mean, what world do we live in where it's like 15 bucks every few weeks is going to pay rent on an apartment for a mother and a child. Like it's nothing, right? The, the, the amount of money that we're talking about when we talk about housing in America is so, so massive, so extreme that, you know, Camilla has so little money that she can't even afford to get the affordable housing apartment that she wins in the lottery. And so, you know, we have a lottery for affordable housing here in New York, which I mean, just the concept of you needing to win a lottery to get an affordable apartment. And then as a student who is being supported by public assistance so that she can go off and have a career that actually builds a life. And frankly, as a public servant in criminal justice, you know, it's just, it's impossible. And yet the notion that she would spend money on makeup or on a manicure or on looking like the other students do when she shows up for class. It just, I think we have something so messed up in terms of what sort of dignity we afford people and who, who gets to have the privilege at 22 of, of having that dignity, of having any source of self-confidence, of having any sense of normalcy. 
you know, a year's worth of manicures wouldn't get her a week's rent on an apartment. And so, yeah, there's a lot of homelessness that we don't see. And, you know, I often sort of bristle at the notion of the invisible poor, because it's always like invisible to whom. But I think that your point about who is visible in terms of homelessness, that panhandler, and who isn't someone like Camilla, you know, walking down the street with her stroller looking like, you know, either a a far more privileged mother or as she was often confused for, you know, a nanny, but a nanny with a job and housing stability. It's just, it's, it's, it's a real issue, especially when you start thinking about the fact that, this is something that that gets worse generation by generation. And it's not just Camilla that we're seeing in that moment. It's also Alonzo. It's also her son who we don't see as unhoused, who we don't see as, you know, receiving less support than even his mother did 22 years before when she was being raised in poverty because, you know, because we don't have housing vouchers in the same way. So Camilla was in an apartment with her mother and her siblings, but Alonzo's in a shelter that he might not even be able to stay in. And that's just two decades of erosion of what we believe people deserve in America. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about that that erosion. One of the, the, the things that we were doing as a class is in this last week, we're, we're looking at income inequality in the United States in this unit. And we were looking at the Times had an interesting report card for de Blasio. I don't know if you saw that last week, but basically you know, how he did on things like school integration, how he did on um, closing the gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, is it still a tale of two cities? And one of the points that, that the paper made is that the Gini coefficient in New York hasn't budged at all since mm-hmm. de Blasio came in. And there are, you know, more billionaires than ever. I think there's 99 billionaires in New York City. The housing situation has only gotten worse. I, as you point out in your book, there are just so many more which were never good, but so many more options for people 20 years ago. So under both Republican and Democratic administrations, the crisis only deepens. Why do you think that that is? Why is it so, why has it been so difficult? Oh, I mean, you know, I, I just think that our, our tax structure is so insane, the, the way that wealth gets concentrated at the top and the way that then real estate becomes a place for people to park that wealth. There was a crazy series in the Times a few years ago about just the most expensive apartments in New York and how they're completely uninhabited for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just a place for people to hide their money. So you know, just the existence of these billionaires, the existence of this winner takes all capitalism is a really big part of it. But then specifically about, you know, sort of the housing that isn't billionaire housing. You know, there's a moment that I think about a lot that um, from the beginning of COVID where I was on a Zoom with a guy in Washington state in Seattle who runs a shelter. And it was at this moment where hand sanitizer was really, really hard to find because they were just producing pre-COVID mm-hmm. amounts of hand sanitizer and people were selling it on like eBay and Amazon all over the place for, you know, tons and tons of money. And he was, and, and people were outraged, right? That, you know, that there was this sort of no cap way of thinking about something that felt like a, a public health question. And right. I, I always remember this guy saying, can you believe that we have a public which is outraged 
you know, to spend $60 on a bottle of hand sanitizer, but this is exactly how we approach housing every day and always have. And there's no outrage about that. It is literally everything to the highest bidder and however far you can push that up, that's what it is. And the fact that we don't have policy that a, you know, maintains a totally different tax structure that that puts that money into the lives of, of people, you know, and not just people like Camilla, but people, you know, like you and me, Lev, um, people who aren't billionaires and mm -hmm. who are just sort of, I mean, I'm assuming that you're not a billionaire. No, I was thinking, um, I was thinking so about So you're a really altruistic billionaire. <laughs> I was thinking about the affordable housing <laughs> lottery, right? And it's so we're in the process of, of, you know, we're in it and we kind of like, we kind of won but you don't really win because the housing's not, I mean, I'm a public school teacher. We don't make a ton and we are going to be paying way more than half of our salary to get into one of these affordable housing units. And we consider ourselves lucky that we got a, a high number in this, in this lottery, it's, but it's not affordable. Oh, it's crazy. And then, you know, and then people will often, I get a lot of reader mail about this book and what things that people, for some reason, it's usually male readers write me saying, well, she should just leave New York. The fact that she feels like she should be mm -hmm. living in New York. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, her whole community is here. It's the, it's the place that she's lived her whole life. So, you know, would you just get up and leave everyone, you know, with your child <laughs> where your whole community is, but also, you know, like, yeah, New York is expensive, but everywhere is expensive right now. Yeah. You know, what, how people are feeling rent burdened, which is, you know, paying more than a third or a half of your salary in, in rent. I mean, rent burden, burden is everywhere. It's in Florida. It's in Colorado. It's, you know, you name it. There's like almost nowhere where people are not experiencing that. You made a point in the book that I thought was really interesting, which is that the rent is rising fastest in low-income communities here in New York. Oh, yeah. And so like, if you look in like, if you look in the Bronx, because we're looking for apartments, if you look in the Bronx, you'll see that the rent is maybe for a two bedroom, a couple hundred dollars less than it is in, you know, in parts of Brooklyn. You, you wonder how people are affording, like there's no rent that is affordable for people who are making a minimum wage. I think that's the point. Sure. Yeah. And as you know, well, you know, even public school teachers are many are on public assistance. I mean, like, so there's a question of how we compensate professions. It's also just a question of the fact that if you're bussing tables and your family's in the Bronx, you are competing for apartments that are like, what, a couple hundred dollars less, as you said, than people who are working in banks right now. Right. It's incredibly dystopian. It is. And so it sounds like what you're what you're saying is that this is a this this is very much a political problem. Oh, yeah. I see almost every issue as a systemic issue and as a systemic issue that only gets changed if we reform systems. But there is there's so little political will for this. And, you know, I mean, you brought up de Blasio before. He definitely he was definitely elected as someone who who said that he understood these issues. But, you know. Cuomo didn't understand these issues. And so there was only so much that de Blasio could do. And, you know, and Washington obviously has been completely stymied in trying to approach these issues. And yeah, we've got like a few people in Congress who really feel it and really get it. But that means so little, um, even within 
the party that is most poised to help much less what it means to have the situation that we're in now. But, you know, I, I like to remind people that most of the story that you're reading in this book takes place in 2015 when Barack Obama was still president, when it was, you know, in so many ways, our best chance to have a leader who, you know, who was a community organizer who came up seeing this stuff, but just the, what he was able to get done and how I think all of those bargains exist in our process of governing. It's, it's a really bleak crisis and one that it, it feels very, very hard to, to see an end to. I mean, I really get frustrated with this idea of populism as something that exists on the right for people who feel, you know, unseen and unheard within their own white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the sorts of systemic changes that, you know, I'm implying here clearly would, would help people who tend to be, you know, Trump supporters as much as they would help anyone else. But somehow, I think the process of, of just eroding our education system and devaluing any humanity that isn't uh, at the top of the pile is just, we, we dug this for ourselves over many generations. And here we are reaping it. I'd say, well, I don't know, a third of the book seems to be spent in social service offices. And these are incredibly frustrating moments for Camila, who, you know, my dad once described to me being a parent is kind of like being, being a parent in America and being lower income in America um, is sort of like being in a, a rowboat going across the Atlantic. And you're just, you don't know when you're going to get to the other side. And all of the agencies, all of the support that's supposed to be there is not, they're not only helping, not helping you, but they're also like throwing water into the boat. So I'm, I'm wondering whether you think, I mean, there's just, there's meanness, there's incompetence, there's so many errors, bureaucratic errors made, so much time wasted. I'm wondering how much of, of that is, is intentional. Oh, I mean, I think a ton of it. The meanness and incompetence, I don't think is intentional. That part I think is about the fact that the person on the other side of the welfare desk is, you know, doing just a little bit better than the people who they're there to serve. You know, we, we underpay, undervalue, undertrain our civil servants and put them in positions to deal with impossible problems every single day. Um, but I do think that those problems are intentionally made impossible. I, I always think of this moment. I was out visiting my sister-in-law in Berkeley, California, where she does, um, she does social policy work. And I was sitting at her breakfast table, just like going off about the days that I had spent going from one welfare office to another, from one borough to another, waiting all day for a worker who, you know, wasn't ever going to see us and then come back and do it again. I mean, just, you know, the draconian maze of, of what it was like to just get the most basic things done. And she literally had on the table a book that she pushed across the table to me mm -hmm. called Administrative Burden. And it's a book written by two professors, one is at Georgetown, who have really studied exactly why it is that 
paperwork is so impossible and obtuse and why offices don't communicate with each other, like all of the different, you know, things that exist across our social services system that I was witnessing being lived on the ground day by day by one person. And the system is frankly built that way. It's built that way, you know, ostensibly to discourage fraud, but there's so little fraud that exists. And it is, it's just, it, it, it beats people down. And frankly, if you're going to have to spend that much of your life being dehumanized to get a public assistance check for, you know, a few hundred dollars, like at a certain point, it will feel like it's not worth it that it's such little payoff for such massive effort and frankly, effort that you're missing work to, you know, to, to show up for effort that, you know, you, you're trying to balance parenthood with what it means to be in an office day after day, show up um, for days that you haven't committed to yourself. Like it's just, it's mind blowing. And it is something that I think really prevents people from getting the services that not only do they need, but even in the, the paltriest definitions of assistance, people have decided they deserve. And so of course, you know, we end up paying less, um, because people are seeking it less or we're making it more impossible for them to get that little tiny bit of assistance. And it's, you know, people often ask me what surprised you the most when you reported this book. And obviously it's not going to be that, you know, being homeless is bad, (laughs) that being poor is hard. Mm -hmm. You don't go into a book like this unless you already know this is going to be awful and I'm going to see how awful it is. This is the thing that surprised me. The, The whole concept of administrative burden and seeing how it is lived, what it is like to be put through that system. That was the thing that in the end actually shocked me. The kids were so upset, outraged, and they wondered whether or not they wanted me to ask you whether or not this process for you radicalized you. Like if you weren't already a socialist, did it make you, did it make you a socialist? Um, I mean, I pretty much showed up. <laughs> feeling okay. feeling all the anger that I feel now. Um, I would say that it it refined my radicalism a little bit. You know, I yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I'm someone who who is very much a socialist when when it comes to looking at these systems. Um, you know, I'm also someone who who believes in people working where their talents lie and where their interests lie. You know, I'm not someone who who can imagine a sort of grayed out total equality that doesn't permit individualism and desire and momentum Mm. and all of that. Um, I think that socialism gets a a pretty bad rap and there's a lot of misconceptions about it. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. When, when if you want to just paint my politics with a white <laughs> brush, that's, you know, I'm wearing red and I think it looks good on me. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of, of, you know, I think that a lot of people think about socialism in terms of having more government bigger systems, et cetera. And I think that watching the dysfunction of the existing bureaucracy certainly doesn't make me say, yes, the answer to this is more democ- more bureaucracy. It's 
better bureaucracy. It's a better design. And, you know, frankly, I think that we could go to a Wednesday night meeting at the shelter in Park Slope where I was reporting and Mm -hmm. ask the 12 women assembled there, how would you like to see your system function differently? And in an hour, we could lay out a system that would be functional. I mean, Mm -hmm. this, you know, I think that the feeling is that these problems are too big to solve, that they've been too broken for too long. You know, even just thinking about about what it means for, for people to have housing. It's like, there are some things that are hard to solve, right? Like all of the racism and sexism that, you know, anti-immigration sentiment that exists sort of as the underwater river through this book, that stuff is hard to solve. It is solvable. <laughs> we can do it. We need to do it. But this stuff, you know, what it means to actually get housing for people, like that's, Before the pandemic, there was a pretty standard number that people like across think tanks, regardless of their political leanings, pretty much agreed on, which is that it would cost $20 billion to house the homeless in America through the whole country, $20 billion. And it's like, oh my God, $20 billion feels like a ton of money to people. Well, we just, what did we just give the airlines, right? Mm -hmm. Um, During COVID or frankly, what did Bezos just earn through people relying on Amazon Prime during the pandemic. Like if we had the the top 20 billionaires in the country commit, you know, $1 billion. Okay, great. So then we have people in stable housing. Then we just have to think about housing vouchers. Like the housing crisis is something which is so solvable. And we have so many problems that aren't that, you know, anyone in the shelter will tell you housing is the baseline. You can solve nothing without stable housing. But once you've got that, other things start becoming possible. And it just feels to me like the fact that we have refused to solve this problem, which, you know, frankly, I think we need to be doing on a governmental basis. But while we have this winner takes all economy, like, fine, let's put pressure on the billionaires to be the people who give us like that first line of actual spaces and services for people. And then let's reform, you know, or simultaneously, let's think about how to reform how we think about income inequality, but let's get people stable so that they can be active citizens to make that happen. I just, there are so many simple ways out of this and, and really seeing those ways, I would say, is how I maybe became more radicalized through this process. And frankly, you know, now walk through the world, seeing people who look like Camilla and wondering where they sleep at night, wondering what their ambitions are, wondering what's there to support them. Yeah, we got into this very interesting conversation in the class about the men in the book and almost to the to the man uh they were they were all pretty terrible and the kids were were talking about sort of what what's the problem with men and how do you solve that and someone brought up a good point and they said look men are going to be are going to be terrible in any system but if, if you can give people housing and if you can deal with the poverty question then women don't have to depend on them so much. It's, it's bad to deal with them, but it, it's not a life or death situation. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking as you're saying this, 
not only do women not have to depend on them so much, but men don't feel as depended on, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of like, tethering yourself to a romantic partner doesn't feel like such a weight, such a crisis. You then get to make choices based on what you actually want in the world and not just what your responsibilities are. Um, I mean, like this is a whole element of privilege that I think we never think about or talk about, right? Who gets to just have romantic relationships based on desire and chemistry and compatibility um, and the pleasures of life, which is what we attribute to those relationships as a culture. But if everything is about crisis, everything is about subsistence, then those are the things that determine whether a relationship can work. And it's too much pressure. And of course, the privilege of being, you know, male in our society, especially when there's a baby involved, is you can bail. And if, if you're 22 and you see your life ahead of you, why wouldn't you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that there's a, a built-in inequality right there that, that never gets to be solved because of how much pressure there is. But I have to say, yeah, I mean, the dudes in this book do pretty much suck. It's true. <laughs> but I actually think that they are, that they have their own complicated roles too, right? Where they have their own ambitions, they have their own visions of what their lives should be. And they want to pursue those lives as much as Camilla does. She's just the one who gets stuck with the baby. And there's a character in the book named Jeremiah. And I just don't want to spoil too much for anyone who's going to read the book, because for me, part of part of the creative process of writing this book was trying to figure out how it would be this self-propelling suspense story, right? Mm -hmm. Where where it would be a page turner where you wanted to see how crises would be resolved, including, you know, romantic crises. And Jeremiah, who ends up sort of being the main male figure in the book for reasons that readers will experience seems like he's just like such a waste such a jerk such a dead weight and then as it goes on as he begins to trust his place in Camilla's story we start seeing how really remarkable he is how smart he is how much he's distrusting her as much as she's distrusting him for really legitimate reasons and Things do end up a bit heartbreaking in the end, but I just, you know, I think that we can see everyone, even men, you know, in 360 degrees, that we can see their concerns, their crises, their motivations, and how they've been burned, especially as men of color, um, as men who are part of our immigration story throughout their own systemic stories, their own multi-generational stories, you know, and I want men like Jeremiah to have as much of a chance to live a full life as, you know, as someone who lives in the United States as I want Camilla to have. And I think we're just failing everyone all around. Lauren, this will be the last question, but I've been, I've been asking my guests recently to end on, on a positive note. So what is the thing that it makes you most optimistic right now? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, 
I I want I want to have I want to have some optimism for you. I would say you know, I reported this book in, you know, from like 2014 to 2016 when it really felt like things couldn't get worse. And then, you know, then we elected Trump, then we had a pandemic happen. We had like, you know, the incredible exposure of inequality that happened early on in that pandemic, the notion that we might build back better than the notion that maybe the pandemic is something that was sort of resolved <laughs> through vaccines, et cetera. <laughs> You're asking me this question in, you know, at the end of 2020 where things, I would say that my, I'm gonna have like a first thought, best thought response, which was when you asked this question, my initial like heart response was that there are people like Camilla who, you know, who want to know what their rights are, who want to, regardless of everything stacked against them, really feed their ambitions, maintain their curiosity, imagine a different life than the one that society and culture is telling them that they deserve. And they want to do it by any means necessary. I want those means to change. And that's what I am pessimistic about. But, you know, the spirit and the drive and so many people who our society has just given up on, that is what makes me optimistic. And I think that however we can fan those flames, however we can, um, we can change that road ahead. And frankly, not just for people who have such a tenacious spirit like Camilla, but for people who are so beaten down that it's hard to even find it in themselves. I think that I think that wherever we can find that humanity, that desire, that ambition, that, you know, that sort of zest for life and support it, that's where we are going to build a future, not just for the Camillas of the world, but also for her son, Alonzo. That this is a game where we have problems that we can solve, we can win this. It's just going to take everyone's determination, everyone who can see it. Thank you.